to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. My name is Aidan Muir and I am here with Leah Heigl, my co-host, and this is episode 109 where we're going to be talking about optimizing nutrition and lifestyle to gain muscle mass. So we're going to go slightly broader than just nutrition stuff, just to cover pretty much everything we can on this topic in a decent time frame. I was going to say <laughs> under 20 minutes, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how we go. Um, let's start with calorie intake for muscle building. So ideally to optimize muscle building and muscle growth, we are wanting to be in a small calorie surplus. So Muscle building itself is a very energy intensive process. So if we don't have additional calories for that process, our body's just not going to prioritize it quite as much as if we do have some additional calories to fuel that. For most people, this is going to look like around a five to 20% increase above baseline maintenance calories like prior to accounting for changes in energy expenditure, which we've just filmed a podcast on um, how our calorie intake affects calorie expenditure. Um, so that's a wormhole on its own, but overall five to 20% above baseline maintenance calories is kind of what we're looking for. Ideally, this is going to be enough calories to gain weight consistently while aiming for a good ratio of fat to muscle gain. Um, I personally like to aim for at least two parts muscle to one part fat as like a good ratio. I think anything uh, worse than that, we've probably gone a little too fast or haven't optimized other variables in that we will talk about in regards to muscle building. Um, so this would look like, let's say you gained three kilos over three months. If you had did a pre and post DEXA scan and found that two of those kilos were muscle mass and one kilo was fat, I'd call that a success when it comes to muscle building. Um, if you add in this calorie surplus and weight is not changing after a long period of time, you basically just add in more calories and then just kind of keep an eye on generally your body composition as you gain weight. Cause obviously you can do the pre and post DEXA scans, which are awesome and can inform future bulk bulking sessions uh, or bulking periods. Um, but if you keep an eye on just how much fat you are gaining, whether that's through like uh, pinch tests or waist measurements or just how your clothes fit and look, um, it's a good way to kind of gauge whether you're going too fast or maybe too slow. Um, the ideal rate of gain is largely based on your ability to gain muscle. So a lot of this is based on genetics, how much muscle mass you currently have, and a bunch of other different factors. Um, but when I first start working with clients, I do kind of aim for that more modest rate of weight gain for most people, which is around that half a kilo to a kilo per month. Another factor in that could arguably be like desire to stay lean as well. Like some people, like if they really, really want to stay lean, like they would really want that like two parts muscle to one part fat gain. It's hard to get fat gain much lower than that, but like they kind of go slow, conservative, everything like that. There are some people in this world who wouldn't really care if they stayed lean in the process. Um, let's use, I know it's an American example, but like an offensive lineman in American, like in, in the NFL, for example, it's trying to be massive. <laughs> yeah. Like super heavyweight powerlifters trying to gain as much size. Um, even then though, there is one thing I'd put out there just being like being in a larger surplus only really increases muscle gain a very small amount. Like it doesn't make a massive difference. There's a study that I share occasionally on Instagram, but it was based on co college athletes who were lifting weights, but they're obviously decent level athletes already, which also means they probably got good genetics too. Another, another topic. To a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. But they, um, 
one group got given a 500 calorie surplus. The other group got given pretty much like they were told to add, eat ad libitum, just have a small surplus. And the group that got the small surplus, they, they stayed quite lean and they gained a decent amount of muscle mass. Whereas the other group gained a tiny bit more muscle mass, but a lot more fat mass. So mm. even if you were like, I don't really care about saying like, it doesn't really speed up the rate of progress. The process a lot. Yeah. So now we've got calories out of the way. We'll talk about some macronutrient stuff. So protein, carbs, fats, starting with protein, a very good gauge to aim for is like 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight protein per day. That number comes from research from people who are probably about 10 to 15% body fat. So if you had a higher body fat percentage than that, you could probably scale the numbers down a little bit to say like 1.4 to 2.0. The research on people in that body fat percentage range basically found that 1.6 grams per kilogram optimized it in the majority of cases and going higher didn't have any further benefit. The 2.2 number was there from like statistical research. Like it was, it's a confidence interval number is basically what it is. But it's like to be like there are outliers in this world. Let's just make sure we cover them. So really just getting above 1.6 makes sense. I, I like to encourage getting above that and maybe going a little bit higher just so that if there's any days where you accidentally undershoot a little bit, you still reach that target. Going above that, completely fine. You could even go above the 2.2. That's not going to slow down muscle gain at all. It just takes away from the opportunity to get in more carbs or fats, which could have other benefits or come alongside different micronutrients too. Talking about the carbs and fat side of things, we'll start with, with fat because I view it in terms of like you figure out your calories, you figure out your protein, then you pick a fat target roughly, and then you fill out the rest of your calories with carbohydrates. And these can be ranges, they don't have to be specific numbers. But a solid range for dietary fat intake while trying to optimize muscle growth is 0.5 to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. So for somebody who's 100 kilos, an example to keep mass really simple, that would range anywhere from 50 to 150. I don't really like the upper end of that range so much. I'm much more of a fan of the lower end of that range. If you go below the lower end of that range, it could have implications for hormones. For example, in men, it could reduce testosterone levels, which obviously could have an impact on muscle. But once you get above a certain range, it's no longer really affecting hormones. Once you're above that 0.5, for sure, it's no longer affecting hormones negatively. But the further above you go, it's no longer providing additional benefits for hormones but it cuts into the amount of carbs and protein that you can have. If you've already got enough protein, that doesn't really matter, but it would take away from the opportunity to get in more carbs. So this is another interesting topic and it's hard to tell based on research because there's a lot of variables going to research, for example, genetics, how long people have been training for. We can't really assess this stuff super clearly, but if we look at things theoretically, it's difficult for carbs and protein to convert to body fat. Like firstly, protein has to be converted to glucose first and then go through another process to be converted to to body fat. Carbs or glucose technically can be stored as body fat, but usually a lot less easily than dietary fat can. You hear that and it kind of makes you freak out. (laughs) Like (laughs) the research like hasn't really found a difference. It's finding that if you... If you did put together a study where you had a bunch of people at the bottom end of that fat target and somebody like another group at the top end of that fat target, I don't think we'd actually see that much difference in body composition, which kind of means we can, we've got a decent range, right? And you could even make arguments for higher than that to, to a degree. But based on the theory, like it kind of like, there is a limit in terms of like, 
Let's say somebody is, and this is me, my personal interpretation more than anything, so don't take this too seriously, but let's say we've got somebody who's coming from a long training layoff and they previously had a lot of muscle mass. They have an opportunity to get like to optimize their lifestyle for muscle gain and they can go into a slightly larger calorie surplus than the average person without a lot of fat gain because they're they're primed to build muscle in comparison to somebody else. You could make a pretty strong argument that that person should go in the lower end of the fat target because it limits how much fat can actually be stored to a certain degree because dietary fat can get stored a lot more easily. But if somebody is gaining at a decent rate and they're only having, say, 50 grams of dietary fat per day, how much of that 50 grams is getting stored as body fat? Because obviously some will have to be used for other portions. They can only be gaining so much fat per day. Complex topic, and that's why I do come back to the logic of being like, the research can't really find a difference. Yeah, it's kind of at the moment based on mechanism, but it still makes sense Like if you're comfortable consuming slightly on the lower end of that range. Like, why not? Yeah, and like another topic, like I don't want to go too deep into this topic, but if somebody is taking performance-enhancing drugs, if, if a guy was taking testosterone, then suddenly the, the bottom end of that range kind of falls away a little bit because it's like yes. it's no longer being It's no involved. longer an issue. It's no longer an issue. Um, they're gaining at larger rates. Completely separate topic. And like once you get to those kind of things, it's like once you start looking at really low-fat targets, it's like it's almost impossible to get that low anyway. For example, if somebody has like lean beef mince as a protein source, it has a few grams of fat mm-hmm. per 100 grams. It starts like you're not going to get below 20 grams for as an extreme example. Yeah, especially if you have a big calorie budget. Exactly. It's <laughs> just unfeasible at some stage, which is why that range of like 0.5 to 1.5 exists. So we're going to go to, I guess, something more lifestyle related now rather than um, nutrition specific, but that's talking about sleep. Just because sleep can have a pretty big impact on your ability to gain muscle mass or at least optimizing gains in muscle mass. So research has shown huge benefits from getting over eight hours sleep. I think we all know that we should be getting at least kind of that eight eight hours sleep. Um, Some research on college athletes have found that even getting like nine to 10 hours sleep can even be more beneficial for athletes specifically, more recovery to do and things like that, more time sleeping, you know, kind of from a mechanistic point of view makes sense. Um, But an argument that is made against that would be that the claim around like, if you sleep for nine to 10 hours, most of us are going to naturally wake up before we get to the nine to 10 hour mark. Um, so like, do we actually need that additional sleep if we're naturally waking up before that? A counterclaim to that. So like a counterclaim to an argument against yeah. something else. Yeah. Um, but a counterclaim to that is that as we age, we do end up naturally waking up a little bit quicker. Um, but is that because we need less sleep to optimize recovery? Or is it just because as we age, we get less sleep? And that's just one of the negative things of aging. Yeah. And yeah, jumping in on that, like some people can interpret that being like, oh yeah, it's life responsibilities etc jumping it's harder to get more sleep but it, it, it is even more than that like if somebody goes to bed at a normal time and they just wake up when they wake up it seems like as we age we get shorter and shorter amounts mm-hmm. of sleep but once again based on the research as this research is ba- usually based on college athletes like they get heaps of sleep and it improves their performance like body composition like even like skills-based testing like if they if somebody's a soccer player like they do more accurate passes and stuff like that when they get better sleep and it's like could that carry over to improve form in the gym for example like heaps of ways of looking at it but it's like it just seems like people do wake up a little bit earlier you could say kind of naturally yeah and that's not necessarily 
better. Doesn't <laughs> necessarily mean happens. we don't, we wouldn't benefit from that extra sleep, yeah. even though we do kind of naturally wake up. And I think a lot of that is also dependent on what you're doing frequently. Like if you have a pretty set sleep schedule, like yeah. your body will naturally kind of be in that cycle of we go to sleep at this time and we wake up that time. So yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean we don't need that extra recovery time. Like for me personally, nine to 10 hours feels so good, even yeah. though it's most of the time not feasible. Um, but overall sleep is going to be really important to optimizing recovery and therefore muscle building and that your muscle building journey, potentially even like just better body composition outcomes in a calorie surplus and, um, potentially a reduction in injury risk. Yeah. And there's a lot of like a lot of elite level athletes who have exceptionally like outlier long careers who are massive on sleep, largely for that injury reduction risk as well. And a lot of them talk about this concept of like, cause they can't get as much as they'd want in that one hit. They do have naps throughout the day. Like they might get seven to eight hours at night and then an extra one or two hours during the day after yes. a training session or something like that. I'm a big advocate for midday naps after lunch. Yeah. <laughs> like if it's something you can do as an athlete, I love it. <laughs> yeah. And it's another topic like from the caffeine perspective and how that affects everything. But it's like, yeah, it starts getting logistically more difficult if you're napping in the day as well. But, totally. Totally. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about training. Obviously as dietitians, I don't know. We avoid getting too deep into this for very, very many reasons. I, I try, I have a clear rule on Instagram that I just don't talk about training. I sure. get a lot of training questions, but I'm like, I, I just think it's a rabbit hole that like, it would be silly for me to go down, even though I care about it a lot, but we are going to talk about some very clear non-controversial statements from a training perspective. You want to be lifting weights with progressive overload, or you want to be doing some form of resistance training with progressive overload. You probably want to be resting for two to three minutes between sets Research is pretty clear that if people do shorter rest periods, it is not as effective for muscle growth and strength building as well. Um, there are obviously exceptions to this. This is just a general rule. There are certain exercises, like if you're doing isolated stuff, like you could probably rest a tiny bit shorter. If you're doing like massive set of squats, like maybe you can go a little bit longer or whatever. Um, ideally taking sets to within at least three reps of failure for most of your working sets and just a friendly reminder that can actually be quite hard to do on a lot of stuff. Like if you're doing a set of 20 on leg press, like, like most people are going to end up just having to stop when it gets too brutal mm -hmm. rather than like getting to a legit within three reps of failure. If you had a gun to your head type situation. Yeah. That's actually like, like quite close to failure realistically. Like you're going to feel it by the time yeah. you get there. <laughs> and like, it, it's, a, it's another complex topic, but like a lot of, um, a lot of research is done under those circumstances where they have somebody like motivating them, almost like yelling at them as they're lifting and forcing them to go to failure. And they'll come to the conclusion that like a couple of reps from failure seems to be like the sweet spot or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like in the real world, like what if you go into the gym, you're training by yourself, you're not hyped, all those things like mentally, it might even make sense to like try to push for failure rather than trying to keep reps in the tank. Cause it's hard to go into a set of like leg press sets of 20 being like, I'm going to keep three reps in the tank and then like not, sandbag it and go a little bit too low yeah um the for for context as to why that is very clearly not a controversial statement though like there was a meta-analysis that literally came out this year um lane norton published or posted about it the other day he was saying that his powerlifting coach was one of the one of the authors on this paper they i've said to be very non-controversial i've said at least within three reps of failure within at least three reps but like that paper came to the conclusion that like one to two reps of failure like they can measure a difference between three and one to two which is even shifting the scientific consensus a little bit, like after mm. like looking at this, 
obviously all of this research has existed, but it's the first time in a re- in recent history that's been all put together in a meta analysis. Um, and people will make an argument that even though it's like within one to two reps of failure, sometimes you should take some sets to failure at least to like get a clearer gauge of where failure is as well. And just from a different topic, but like, what if you took the first set to failure that reduces your overall volume because you're cooked for the next set. So it's like, if you're going to test out some sets to failure, it makes sense to do that at the end. Um, Like if you did three sets or something on the third set, it would probably be better than on the first set. Another not controversial statement, avoiding overtraining or undertraining. I'm not going to specify there. I'm just going to leave that as a very, like, that's a clear, obvious thing. Yep. Um, Hitting each muscle group two plus times per week, very clearly the scientific consensus. This is based on muscle protein synthesis rates and stuff like that. I've seen Greg Knuckles from Stronger Bio Science talk about a point that I think a lot of us see, but it, it, he, he, added, he added an interesting point. That's like, there's a lot of people who are the best in the world, particularly bodybuilders who are training muscle groups once per week, and they've somehow became the best of the world. And I've seen a lot of people, particularly in the evidence-based community, kind of talking about this concept of like, they're kind of good despite that, not because of that. Being like the research has always shown that two plus times per week is is what is best. A point Greg Knuckles made is basically being like, maybe it doesn't matter over a training career. Like maybe it matters over a 12-week study, but maybe it doesn't matter over a, an entire a training long, career. A long, long time. Yeah. yeah. But like if we're just going based, non-controversial, scientific consensus, hitting each muscle group two plus times per week is the goal. And another not controversial thing is having a solid program. Like I could talk heaps about that but like that is a smart move that is something that will help facilitate that progressive overload and everything like that you probably don't want to be switching exercises super frequently having to relearn new movements and new patterns and everything like that um, you probably want to be getting good at a few exercises and getting stronger at those exercises and obviously just having a good solid overall program yeah i think it's like it's good to kind of briefly touch on training because like from a nutrition perspective there's only so much we can do without mm a solid training approach. So even though it's not our area of expertise, I think it's a really great summary of kind of like the general points I even kind of hit on with my clients in terms of like, if you're not working with a coach, at least you have the, like at least have these kind of couple of things going on. Yeah. It's kind of tough. Cause like we, we are doing these things. Like we are getting clients to do like DEXA scans at certain frequencies, like not every single client, but the clients yeah. who care about this. And it, it is kind of tough when it's like, we're nailing the nutrition side of things. But they're just doing whack stuff with their training. They're just doing like weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have a lot of like, um, a lot of people come in and they're doing something like F45 where I know it's like, it's kind of like just random training. It's not programmed training or progressive overload. And they're like, my main goal is to build muscle. And I'm like, yeah. well, you're going to have to change your training. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll talk about like progressive <laughs> overload and they're like, oh yes, I'm lifting heavier weights in class. I'm like, I'm still not like. It's not really yeah. super solid still. Yeah. So yeah. that's a good thing to mention. Um, talking a little bit more about training, uh, we want to touch briefly on cardio. So cardio doesn't really do much for directly improving body composition. It's not like you need to add cardio into your training in order to burn fat or get a better kind of muscle to fat ratio on a surplus or anything like that. It will, however, influence the calories in versus calorie out portion of this discussion. So you you may need to eat slightly more calories to account for the fact you are doing this additional activity. Um, that's not to say that like cardio is completely useless, obviously, just generally from a like a muscle building perspective or because it, it has health benefits. Obviously, we know having good cardiovascular fitness 
is a good thing. Um, so doing it twice a week in some kind of capacity is probably a good idea. I know a lot of powerlifters try to get a couple of sessions of just like steady state cardio. So nothing that's going to particularly interfere with their resistance training, but it's just so they can keep kind of a baseline of like good cardiovascular fitness just for general health. And also to have a baseline of like physical preparedness for that kind of higher rep training. Um, in terms of, I guess, adding in cardio, the only kind of tips we would give is separate it from your lifting sessions where possible. Um, if it has to be with your lifting sessions, don't do it before the lifting session um, because really, realistically, like your resistance training is going to be the thing that helps you build muscle, not cardio. But cardio is a good idea for those kind of several reasons that I they did mention. Yeah, and one concern a lot of people have is that cardio kills your gains. Like, yeah. talking about that very briefly, um, as we said, it probably won't influence body composition or anything like that directly. But like, yeah. there there is this concept of the interference effect, which is basically being like maybe it reduces your ability to recover from training if you do it at a really high mm-hmm. level. We can only do so much overall training, and then the other thing is like maybe it shifts like muscle fiber types and stuff like that. Which like, but like when we look at a based on what the research shows, the interference factor doesn't seem to exist until you get to quite a high volume of cardio. And I think it's as simple as keeping the main thing, the main thing. Based on what the research shows, it seems like you should, if your goal is muscle growth, you should keep your lifting at least two times the volume in terms of the amount of time you spend on it to what you're doing with cardio. So if somebody's lifting six hours per week, they probably should be keeping cardio to less than three hours per week, Mm -hmm. which the reason why I think it's just worth mentioning that is because sometimes people will be scared of doing, say, two times a week, two 20-minute sessions or something like that because cardio kills your gains. Where it's like, <laughs> when we say, like, if I, if I give a range like that six hours to three hours type ratio, somebody will be like, okay, if I did 40 minutes, it's not... <laughs> it's not going to yeah. ruin your muscle gains, yeah. Yeah, so we're trying to keep this under 20 minutes, but we're going to talk about supplements. I don't know how deep we'll go into it. So, like, Listing a few supplements that I think make sense under a lot of circumstances are creatine, protein powder, caffeine, vitamin D, and omega-3s. We'll try and race through them in a short frame, like space of time. Creatine, talk about heaps. It's the number one listen to podcast that we have done, <laughs> fun fact. But um, creatine helps because it improves um, ATP regeneration, which allows us to get out a few more reps here and there on sets. People seem to gain a little bit more lean mass when they're taking creatine versus those who do not. And there's a good kind of meta-analysis looking at people taking training with creatine or training with a placebo, showing that over, say, a 12-week period, the people training with placebo gain about 12% on their one rep max. People taking creatine gain about 20% on their one rep max. So it's like this is improving performance, mm-hmm. and that could carry over to muscle gain as well. Next supplement we will briefly touch on is protein powder. So protein powder on top of an already optimized protein intake is not going to do anything special, but it is absolutely an, a quick, efficient, logistically easy source of protein that you can add in to make sure that you are getting to your desired protein intake. So not a magical thing in terms of like, it's not a supplement that you need, but if you are struggling to get to your desired protein intake or want an easy way of adding in some extra protein, it's a good option. Yeah. And even from like, in addition to total protein intake, also like the distribution side of things as well. Totally. If there's a large gap of our protein, it could make sense to use that. Um, 
Caffeine. Caffeine clearly improves performance. Firstly, it makes us hyped, makes us want to train. That could be useful for a lot of people. But beyond that, it literally does improve strength slash power. Like it improves one rep max performance by say like one to 2%. Not huge, but it like physically does improve performance. Um, if it motivates you, you can get closer to that failure kind of mark. Like that's useful as well. Then obviously lining it up with sleep. There was a meta-analysis on this that came out as well, just showing that like, one of the interesting findings was that if you had pre-workout within 13 hours of going to bed, like a full strength, like 300 milligram dose of pre-workout within 13 hours, it affects your sleep in some way. Yeah, that's insane. If you have one shot of coffee, I think it was about eight hours. So it's like if somebody was going to bed at 10, they would have to stop having that at 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. or a little bit earlier. But that's based on just like one isolated thing. Like if you'd had heaps of caffeine in the morning and then you had that, due to the half-life, you'd probably have to stop a little bit earlier. A little earlier, um, yeah. And that's what I was talking about, the logistics of caffeine around napping during the day because it's like clearly if you had any caffeine at any time, it's probably going to be affecting Interfere with that quality yeah. of, of sleep. Yeah. Uh, next one we'll briefly touch on is vitamin D. So this can be a little bit of a, a wormhole, but there is some research to suggest that when we have vitamin D deficiency, that can slightly impair things like recovery and muscle building to a certain extent. So if you have vitamin D deficiency, it's obviously a good idea to rectify it um, and just keep it topped up, particularly in times like like winter and start such when you don't have a lot of sun exposure, it might be beneficial to take a vitamin D supplement. Yeah, even yeah, immune function as well. Like immune function. Sick less frequently, train yeah. more frequently. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to touch on with caffeine very briefly that I skipped over is like people have different levels of um, metabolizing caffeine. Mm-hmm. Like somebody might metabolize it quicker than other people. So that 13 hours is the average. Some will be longer, some will be shorter. Um, and finally, touching on omega-3s, I think this is far more relevant for people with a low omega-3 intake than people with high omega-3 intake. If somebody with a low omega-3 intake started taking this, it might help with joint health a little bit, which could allow you to train a little bit harder. And there is a little bit of research on the body composition side of things, like leaning slightly, very slightly in favor of gaining a tiny bit more muscle when taking omega-3s. I don't read into that too much, but I also look at it through the lens of being like, that's based on the average person. If somebody had a lower baseline intake, they might get a little bit more out of this than somebody else. So that kind of sums up supplements. Is there anything else you want to add to the muscle building podcast? That, that covers it most yeah. of the time, I reckon. <laughs> All right, we'll cut this off before we get to the half an hour mark. But this has been episode 109 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. If you could leave a rating or review, that would be greatly appreciated. But otherwise, thanks for tuning in.